We are recording. Check, check, one, two. Check, one, two. One, four, three. Why, do, why did they never say four? Eleventeen. Perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Music Cover to Covers, the podcast hosted by yours truly, Mike Venezia. So why a podcast and why me? Well, I'm just a guy who loves music, always has, always will. And I've been lucky enough to have worked in many parts of the music industry, from instrument sales to artist management, and I've been able to meet many cool and interesting people along the way, and I'm hoping to bring some of them in as special guests on this podcast to tell stories of their experiences in the music industry. And also being music fans, there'll be times when I and my special guests will both rave about and rail against bands and songs. In fact, there's going to be a running segment on this show that's called This Song Sucks where unbiased and unvarnished opinions are given, and every show will also end discussing a quality cover song that has been so well-performed that in many cases, that version surpasses the original version. So that's it in a nutshell. Let's open up this LP and get to the liner notes. So my first guest on this inaugural show, inaugural meaning the first, meaning that there are no others before this. After this, there will be others, but this one is the the first would you say it's the genesis is it is, well genesis is the idea right that's oh, when you okay. come up with it so this is after the genesis after genesis comes this so i guess this is the garden of eden this pod? is the apple yeah this is the well i mean that just caused all <laughs> sorts of bad things but anyway uh being that this is the first podcast i have my first guest and my first guest is mr mike tobin who uh, some of us that are that are listening to this, uh, who work with us at a particular guitar company, um, he's been at Taylor Guitars now for how many years? Uh, just over 19. 19 years at Taylor Guitars, uh, between working uh, in our customer service department and in our sales department. But before that, before that, he was Arista recording artist Stick was the name of the band. And I'm sure you have lots of really cool and interesting stories about what it's like to be on a forgotten band on a label. Yeah. Uh, did I say that out loud? That's, I didn't mean to say that out loud, but I'm sure it's probably the truth in a lot of ways. Truth to power, Mike. Speak the truth. <laughs> well, being that, you know, and for those of you that don't know that are listening, I used to, I come from a music industry background. I, you know, of course, uh, I'm a musician myself and I worked in artist management and I saw what it's like to interact with a lot of different record companies and, and how sometimes bands are put up on a pedestal that may not deserve it and some that get the shaft that don't deserve it. But really, you guys you guys come from the middle of the middle of the middle of America, right? That's where Dead St center. Dead center. That's where Stick came from. So yeah. first of all, um, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Mike. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in music leading up to the band stick well i got into the music industry my junior year in high school uh i had a good friend whose older brother worked at the local record store that had just opened in our uh in my neighborhood and i wanted to get a job there really bad and he helped me out because he knew that i loved music a lot and that was really it. I mean, I got this job at a record store. I ended up working there. I started in 1984. I was a junior in high school. My senior year in high school, I was already working full time. So I went to school from like eight to 11 each day and then worked from noon to nine 
you know, a full-time job my senior year in high school and eventually became, you know, manager of that store and managed two other locations. That's kind of the vehicle that, that took me to Lawrence and ended up connecting me with the musicians and guys I ended up playing with. But really that's where it all started. Um, prior to that, I didn't really play it. I didn't play guitar. I just loved records, loved music and loved hanging out in record stores. Just, just like you see, um, you know, in movies like High Fidelity and stuff, where people just hang in the music store. It's like it was just that. That's where it all started. So me. that's really interesting that you say that you didn't really play guitar. No, until a junior year in high school. Yeah. Wow. Like, so or did later, you, did you play music prior to that? What did you have Not interest in playing music prior never, to that? No, never even owned a musical instrument other than maybe like. You know, a, a plastic toy that you banged on when it was like six years. You know, you got one Fisher under the Price Glockenspiel. Yeah, exactly. You got one under the Christmas tree or a set of those bells that were, you know, you're, and no, but I had, I'd never pursued that. I was never involved in music at school. Um, yeah, I was just, I mean, I loved music, but I never got involved in music. It was getting a job at a record store that really kicked that door open for me. That's really interesting because you always hear of people that say, you know, well, I saw Kiss on TV and, you know, when they did, a, you know, the Paul Lind Hollywood, you know, whatever, a mm-hmm. Halloween special. Yeah, and totally. that set me off, you totally. know, which was probably what, what it did, how I started. I mean, Ace Fraley was like my hero when I was a kid. Yeah. But I was, you know, seven. You started around, I'm guessing, 15 or 16. Actually, m- more like... 18 maybe wow yeah okay so that's when you really delved deep into it was was in your you know almost well you know here's what happened i remember being over a friend of mine you know in my little social circle that i hung around high school i remember being over uh my friend jeff's house and he played guitar and i was like oh wow you know how to play guitar that's that's crazy and he i remember i think if i remember correctly he had a safety green kramer focus and like a <laughs> and like a PV, well, whatever their two twelve was that had chorus on it, the cla- you know, just the yeah, big PV, big PV. Amp. Yeah, and we yeah. were down in his basement, and he, you know, he knew some chords, and and he and and one of my other buddies who play played drums, they would just jam because they lived like three houses away from each other, mm-hmm. and those two were really close. And I remember being at his house one day, and I was like, oh my gosh, show me how to play some guitar or something. And those guys like jammed through like a like a Judas Priest song or something and like living after midnight or something. <laughs> and, and I remember him handing the guitar to me and going here, check it out. And, and I didn't, I didn't know where to put my finger. I didn't know what to do, but he was like, well, just put one finger, you know, here and one finger here and make a simple, you know, two note bar chord. And he turned the amp up and he just turned, I remember he reached over and just turned the volume knob all the way up. And he's like, now just hit it. And, and just that feeling that was the hook right there. I was like, Oh, this, this like, it was that it was that moment it was it wasn't yeah it's like you were saying it wasn't i wasn't like wide-eyed in front of a tv watching yeah yeah yeah. it, it was it was more of the actual experience of having a guitar in my hand and feeling it feeling the power feeling the power of the bar yeah. chords and the volume and i was just like oh man that is awesome so obviously you developed a passion for the instrument in in rapid fire succession yeah. uh, from from what it seems and then now it's the mid 80s you're working at the music store you're there full time what kicked you off starting in the bands was it something that happened right away after learning how to play guitar like did you learn three chords and like all right band let's do this <laughs> well what happened was you know I, I went through a couple of really cheap 
guitars that I somehow bought from other friends that were like, oh, hey, I have a guitar and I don't play this anymore. And I'll sell it to you for a hundred bucks. I was like, oh, okay. And they were really... <laughs> Isn't that how we all kind of got yeah. started? And the, were, one, the one that quit and you got their guitar, yeah, right? Yeah. And then one friend had like an old Farfisa organ amp and he oh, was like, Lord. oh, here, you can play guitar through this. And it was just... It was, I mean, yeah. So, so when I first heard a guitar and picked it up, yeah, I was you know listening to sabbath and and ozzy and all that that and van halen and all that heavy the same rock stuff that everybody got into in yeah. the 70s right it's all your, your zeppelin and deep purple and acdc and, and all that stuff but at some point my my musical tastes which i was more focused on listening to music really kind of started being pulled into alternative music I was a huge REM fan in the early 80s, and one of the kids that worked at the record store, a uh, good friend of mine named Chris, he had a guitar, and he had taken lessons, and he had a good guitar and a good amp, and yeah. I remember him having his guitar, He would because he would go to guitar lessons after he worked a shift at the store, or, or before, and he was like, well, I'm going to bring my guitar in, is that cool, because I don't want to leave it in my car. I was like, yeah, yeah, you know how to play guitar, what, you know? And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can I can show you some stuff. And he knew how to play some of these REM songs. And I was like, again, the head just, I was like, oh, my gosh, you can show me how to do that. So anyway, we ended up playing guitar together in a, in a cover band. And that is actually where I learned how to play guitar was it from him and then just by doing it. But I didn't actually start playing guitar playing heavy music. I started playing guitar playing, I guess what you'd call college rock. That's what they called it in the 80s, right? Yeah. It was covers of... Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and the Smithereens and R.E.M. So that that's how I learned to play guitar was playing that stuff. Yeah. And I played in, in a cover band for a number of years. And then eventually I got an opportunity to go open a new location of the record store I was working at up in Lawrence, Kansas, which is where KU is. And for a kid growing up in just the Kansas City suburbs, that was kind of Mecca because, you know, it's a college town. It's like... And I, in my, you know, vision of college towns was like there, there's good music there and there's a scene and people go to shows and it's all this, you know, cool stuff. So I was really excited. And, and when I got there very quickly, one of the guys that I work with who already had just started a band, there was an opportunity for me to, to, to join that band. I left the, the cover band because, you know, I lived in Kansas City and I moved yeah. to Lawrence and couldn't really do that commute anymore so that's the segue into what really got me going so when you when you got into that that new band the mm -hmm. original band is yeah. what i'm guessing doing playing more originals um what was your proficiency at that point you know obviously you'd played in a cover band playing those tunes playing those you know the college music type songs like what was how proficient were you and then how did this new band kind of take you in a different direction and enhance your learning? Or was it a challenge playing in a more original oriented band? Did you, did you enjoy that challenge of writing and, and doing things of that nature? Well, the guy, the band was called kill whitey, right? Great name. Yes. And, uh, they were a four piece <laughs> band with uh, a singer, a guitarist, bass player and drums. And the guitarist worked at the record store with me. You know, Mark, uh, he worked at, at the record store that I was managing. And, and you know, I was thinking about, like, how did that even happen? How did I get in the band? I can't, I almost can't remember. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't remember, I don't remember if I pressed myself upon him or was just like, 
Hey, if you're looking for, I'd love an opportunity. I can't, I think it was probably more like that because they played three gigs. They did an open mic night because there was open mic in, at this, this bar in Lawrence um, every Monday night. So I went and saw them at the open mic night. Then they opened at, at a place called The Outhouse, which you can do your research about The Outhouse. There's a documentary about it and everything, which is where all the punk rock shows. They played with Seven Seconds. They opened for Seven Seconds. Yeah, okay. And then the third gig, they opened back at the bottleneck for Danzig, right? So they went very quickly from three gigs in, they're opening for Danzig. And I went to all those shows, and I just thought, These, this is awesome. These guys are, like, really, really cool. And I... I knew that Mark had talked about wanting another guitar player in the band, but I, w- I, I think that I must have just thrown myself out there. That's all I can remember being like, oh, I'd love to you know, come jam with you guys and see how it goes. The songs, I, I mean, were fairly straightforward. They weren't complicated. They weren't hard to play. They just had, there was a lot of good riffs and good ideas, and it just had this ACDC meets government issue meets Danzig in it or something like that. It was just raw. I mean, like that first Danzig record, you know, there's no production on yeah. it. It was just very dry and raw and yeah. stripped down. And I thought, oh, this is cool. And Kim the was a female, still is, of course, a female vocalist. <laughs> and she just had pipes. I mean, she's just extremely powerful and just this commanding presence. And, and it just, it was all so cool. So, so when I got in it, it was more like I didn't come in with really ideas. I came in to just... Uh, assimilate yeah. assimilate to, to what was kind of going on I remember at some point because my buddy Chris who kind of really taught me how to guitar showed me how to drop tune he was like oh you know, he's like watch what happens when you do this right and I I remember showing those guys like check this out like we were just like if we tuned down and and everyone's eyes just kind of got that oh like it just instantly you re- you know you have that moment where yeah. you're like Oh my gosh! This is how sab- this is how they get that sound. You started new metal, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I wish, or do I? <laughs> do I don't know do if you? I do. I don't know if I do. Yeah. We'll talk about that on another show. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, really, that's how it happened. I got in. I got in the band with those guys. I kind of was into heavier stuff. My taste musically, because that was. I mean, here it comes, you know, that was when the whole Seattle thing was happening. This was like 1989, 1990. And that music was making its way to the college radio stations. Mm -hmm. And I lived in a college town. And so you, you were hearing these people that you could tell, you'd see pictures of me. You're like, you could tell these were, they grew up on black flag and black Sabbath. And it was like, that was right in our wheelhouse. And because that's exactly where we came from. It's like, Mark was really into black flag and i was really in back gotten had rediscovered my roots back into sabbath and it was just the timing of it i didn't really start contributing to the band for a while it was like okay. let's just you know they they i just kind of rode shotgun and played what they played and and, and worked on their songs and yeah. then i started bringing some riffs because it I, just started I guess, happening yeah i know? guess if you just come and you're like hey I, you know, that's like the famous last words of a drummer. Hey, why don't we try one of my songs? Like, you know, that could instantly yeah. like interrupt <laughs> your joining of a band. Like, wow, I love what you guys do, but yeah, exactly. dot, 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 try these. You know, and I guess I could see how, you know, just assimilating and absorbing the culture and then just moving on from there within it. Yeah. Well, that's probably the best way to kind of go about it. If you're, for those of you that are joining bands at some point or invited to join a band at some point, <laughs> take these notes down. So then, fast forward, Kill Whitey has some success locally. Yeah. And then we went from Kill Whitey to Stick. Right. I'm guessing for obvious reasons with the name, but 
why don't you explain the name change and how that leads to getting signed to Arista and moving on from there? The music had gotten, you know, we started almost everything at this point now was drop tuned. Mm-hmm. We were certainly trying to walk in the same footsteps as bands like Soundgarden and stuff. I didn't, I don't, I'm not trying to say we were, I mean, we were certainly influenced by what they were doing, but it, it was because it kind of organically just coincidentally kind of came from the same place. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? They were certainly ahead of us. And we started writing heavier and heavier and more sophisticated and sort of longer songs. I guess sophisticated. I don't know. The songs to me were always kind of simple. But, you know, they, they were heavier. They definitely had that slow, hair-wagging kind of thing going on, you know. droney kind of. Yeah. It wasn't fast and heavy. It was trying to be slower and heavy. And groove. Yeah. And um, we recorded some stuff and did some demos and started... Lawrence started getting some attention on it because of bands realizing, like us, like plenty of other bands, that if we needed to sort of reach out, we sort of had that epiphany where it's like, you know, we could just not be just a local band. You know, we could we could try and and reach out to people and. Also, because I worked at the record store, I knew some people at record labels, the local reps who came in to and and we started handing tapes out and stuff. And that brought some people to see Kill Whitey uh, to Lawrence. We also went to South by Southwest back then, you know, 90 and 91. When when it it was was before it was what it is now, which is like, you Mm -hmm. know, a southern version of, uh, you know, it's like a southern Sundance now. (laughs) Yeah. In a lot of ways, it was an opportunity for independent labels to feature some of their new acts and a hunting ground, I guess, for lack of a better term, of of trying to make connections with your band to to in, a large to the industry and larger industry and get your records out there and what have you. You know, back then it was there were like two really major festivals for music: South by Southwest and Concrete Foundations. Yeah, right, like Foundations and 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 South by Southwest were like the two. And if you played either one of them, that was like you played South by Southwest. It was a big deal, man. It was a huge deal. Yeah, it was a big deal, and we were really excited. We got to go down there. Uh, we played, we, you know, showcased in front of some A&R people from various labels. I, I can't even remember who, who they all were now. Uh, all of them, I'm sure, signed much more successful <laughs> acts than we did. <laughs> or than not. Us or, or not. Or who knows. Yeah. But anyway, um, you know, we, we, we just kept working it. We connected with an entertainment lawyer in Chicago. We never had management or anything like that, but... You know, it's like, I don't even remember how these things happen, frankly. But we ended up connecting with a, a music industry uh, attorney, a woman named Linda Mensch, and she was connected to a lot of bands like Ministry and I, I think maybe Cheap Trick at some point. But uh, anyway, she she was very, you know, she was just a so uh, music Illinois industry. bands, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She was very well connected to the mm-hmm. industry. And that was, so we kept shopping the tape and shopping and just, just couldn't get it over the line you know in the in the form that we were as a five piece and so it was like early 1992 we decided it's either late 91 or early 92 i can't can't, again i can't remember but we decided to make a change and just go to a four piece and mark was going to just sing and i think he felt more passionate about uh what he wanted the material lyrically to be about you know he's 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 very politically minded and very 
he's just got a good mind for that kind of stuff and writes just cool, cool stuff, you know? And so then it seemed to kind of happen fairly quickly. We played only a few shows Again, she, our attorney kept shopping tapes out for us. I call her an attorney. I mean, it sounds weird, but it's like really she was just our liaison to the industry. She was helping us reach a wider audience by distributing tapes and stuff like that. There, there wasn't anything legal to represent <laughs> at that point. I mean, you know, she but would, it, she would have been stepping over dollars to pick up dimes from us. So. True story. But at the same time, I mean, you have to under, you have to agree that being protected as a new artist is is always important, and having somebody on the legal side of things to protect your interests yeah. is vitally important. Somebody who's on your side, not working from behind, if you yeah. will, uh, you know, in in a bad way. Like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna yes you to death. And by the way, it's gonna be really hard for you to put on your shirt with so many knives in your back by the time I'm done with you. You know, you you, you need to trust an attorney to to help you out with that. Yeah. And, and you, cause you hear the horror stories in the industry. You know, mm-hmm. I've heard them, you've heard them, yeah. we've read about them if we're just fans, and whether we were in or in the industry or not, you read about all this horrible stuff all the time. And it's always important that, you know, if you are in a in a up and coming band having appropriate legal representation is important because obviously your lawyer, your liaison, um, a good lawyer will shop your tape because they do have skin in the game. I mean, if you, if you wind up getting signed by anything that they've done financially, they'll benefit in one way or another. Well, yeah, that's how they earn their living. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's, you know, while there may not have been anything legal at that point, they're hoping to get to the point where, they can be enlisted to, you know, redline a contract like crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Linda uh, worked and 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 made some connections for us with with you know people she knew here and there, and and we ended up getting an offer from Arista when they came out. And I mean, I think me from working in a record store all those years and pr- being pretty fr- familiar with record labels and and at least the structure of the industry, I remember thinking. Man, this this is probably this is a long shot. I mean, is this? I guess you kind of had to think: is this better than nothing? I know that sounds really like it doesn't almost make sense when you think when you think of what Arista Records is. It's Clive Davis. I mean, the, the, he's he's an icon. He's I a mean, titan. Yeah, it's he's born more than an icon. He's a titan. You're right. He has produced some of the biggest selling artists yep. in history and signed them and nurtured them and done that whole thing. And so you sort of look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, okay, I'm not Whitney Houston. I mean, at the, at the time, right? <laughs> yeah, the big yeah, artists yeah. were Whitney's ace of bass, the crash test dummies. That's who was really Sarah McLaughlin was just breaking. Those mm-hmm. were the big Arista artists in the early 90s right? i'm sorry i have to stop you there and i don't consider the crash test dummies anything big i didn't consider them big then because i go hmm, 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 hmm a lot yeah. <laughs> and nobody throws money at me and i don't have to go warns the, you know i just no wait well, am, I gonna, am that, i gonna get sued for for that yeah for like doing that vocal we all, right. all know that's not how the industry works though <laughs> it's like it, it there's no you just never know i mean whatever but the, those yeah. My point was, I looked at what we were doing and where we were from and what we had come from, just a basement band in a small town, right? Um, 
against the roster that was on Arista yeah. that I knew all these records. Cause I, you know, it's like in my mind from working at the record store, I'm like, Oh yeah, those are the guys. They always have the orange cassettes, like the spine on the cassettes, always orange with the white font. Like I, I like, that's what went through my mind. I was like, can I see our band logo in that? Like, no way. There's no way. Now, were you guys still kill Whitey at this point? No, we had, we had gone from a, the five piece, uh, with the, with Kim, the singer, and trimmed down to a four-piece. So when you trimmed to the four-piece was when the name changed. Yeah, we changed the name to Stick, and then Mark started just singing, and and then I did the guitar. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because, you know, I mean, having that change, a name change, sometimes a name change is all you need. Yeah. And, you know, if you you look at, and I know that, you know, there's there's listeners that probably know the band Monster Magnet, and their whole thing was they kept sending out the same demo, but with different names, and... (laughs) The one monster magnet is what got them signed. That's the you know that's the uh, the the tail uh, of uh, it was of just the monster same tape magnet. with different band names. Yeah, yeah so I mean sometimes it's like well you know it could have been like you know I don't know like a box of bagels. Well no those guys suck. Okay monster magnet. Oh let's listen to that one. Right. You know kill Whitey. There may have been something that people didn't want to touch, except for like you know like or, sub pop or right. somebody like that at the time. Right. Yeah. And things actually happened pretty quickly at that point. Once we did that, we you know did a demo um, of a few songs and ended up getting an, an offer from from Arista. Unfortunately, you know some of the other people that we've been talking to, um, I want to say like I think it was Virgin Records and and I'm I'm trying to maybe Atlantic. I'm trying to remember who all the people were. It's been so long, man. But Arista actually came through with the offer, and it was yeah. like well. What are we going to do, guys? Are we going to do this? Are we going to be like, you know, from working in the record store, it's like, okay, here's here's their roster. Here's who they are, right? Yes, Clive Davis is this just titan, but here's, here's his roster. Look at his roster. Okay, now let's look at each other and think, I mean, are we going to fit in that lineup? I mean, where, you know, and we knew we were just going to be a guinea pig, right? Uh, a loss leader, right? So a, a tax write-off. It was an experiment, right? Because you never know, right? Maybe, yeah. maybe you give, you know, throw a few shekels at this band and they go record a record, and all of a sudden, it sells a hundred million copies or something. You yeah. never know, right? Yeah. Crash but, test dummies. Right. <laughs> you just, you just never know. You just never know. But it, it the whole thing was, you know. There wasn't a lot of money thrown at it. We recorded the record uh, locally, and we ended up going to. Uh, w- well, we tracked it all locally, and then we went to Butch Vig's studio in Madison, because that was where all that's where everybody went, right? Mm-hmm. And and Paul had also gone there, and we used the same guy that did their record to mix our tracks. And it's hard to say. I mean, I, I think he kind of smoothed them out a little bit too much because the guy we tracked with uh ed rose and lawrence who has quite a name for doing a lot of bands in lawrence and um you know most of them were were sort of after us and and i'm not that connected to that scene but um his his mixes were were a lot rawer and stuff a little a little more muscular i think and that's probably what we we really should have done but any thoughts of going back and uh you know releasing those no i mean we've talked about stuff i I, i'm in a text thread with the guys in the band and and we talk all the time but mostly just about 
other stuff. We don't, you know. Well, why just not? Talk about I mean, life. you throw it up on Apple, to, uh, Apple, you know, Apple Music or what have you, and you get your, you know, point three cents per stream. So, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, are you talking about in terms of getting the record up on a streaming service? Yeah, like in, in its new format. You it's know, it's a it, good question. It, I don't know. I don't even know who owns it or where it is. Or or I'm I'm guessing that Arista would still retain the rights to it. I mean, I guess it could be bought from. I don't even know. I have no idea, man. Maybe you can give them an offer that the Dutch gave the Indians from Manhattan, the Native Americans from Manhattan. I'm not even gonna. I'm gonna delete that completely. <laughs> I'm not touching anything. Yeah, let's not even go there. What you could do is you can give Arista an offer much like the Dutch did for Manhattan and uh, 24 bucks and some trinkets and see if you can get your masters. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, that that's a whole nother thing. It's like, I don't, I mean, they own it, I guess. I don't know what it's worth to them, though. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's you think of like having worked in a record store and watching for all those years for decades. Right. And, and then I, you know, I worked at a record distribution company. When you see the volume of records, and nowadays, like, it's different. You don't even have to physically release a, something, yeah. right? You just release it to the ether, and it, and it just exists on a server somewhere, right? Much like what we're doing today. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly, exactly what this but is. But back then, it's like, if you didn't have a physical product, then it you didn't have anything. Yeah. You, yeah. Just, you either had a CD or a tape or a, or a record, or you had nothing. Like there, you know, you didn't exist. So let's let's get back to the album as it was put out. So you put out the album, and then you start touring, and you start touring like crazy. Now, how long yeah. did you tour for on that first album? The record came out, I think, in September of '93, I believe. We toured fairly consistently, we'll say, from right about that time up until maybe April or May of the following year, 94, I think. So a fair piece. Yeah, yeah. We, we toured, um, well, again, Arista and its product management people and, and their team were not connected to any of the scene that we needed to be connected to as a band. We felt more aligned with heavier acts like Soundgarden or uh, I mean if you were going to try and make comparisons I mean if you're going to start you know the big bands you know like at the time Soundgarden Alice in Chains or Tool or bands like that uh, before they were basically Lollapalooza 92 yeah well but they weren't <laughs> massive acts yet yeah. when Soundgarden came through I mean they were still only playing a 600 seat venue you know yeah. they weren't like an arena act yet so we felt more connected to them when i saw tool the first time they were opening for the rollins band i mean they were just the opening act they weren't the, now yeah. <laughs> it's you know the following of that so i mean we felt more aligned with them like oh like i don't know it just seemed like there was a connection whether it was real or not it just felt like well that's where we need to be that's that's the scene we need to become a part of and then and unfortunately our label just and their marketing people and there was no connection in that we didn't have a management company forever we had we didn't have a booking agent one of the big you know we didn't have we weren't connected to any of the big names the william morrises and yeah. and and whoever the, i don't even remember 
Like, I don't even remember who they were. But, but even with that, though, I mean, you still wind up doing some quality tours. I know you toured with Typo Negative for an extended yeah. period of time in Life of Agony. And um, so, you know, obviously you got some some street cred that way and, and got some built up your chops, I'm sure. I, I will ask this question. From the time, you know, that you finished the album and started touring to the time you finished that tour cycle, as a performer, as a guitarist... How do you feel you grew within that period of time? Like by the time you were done, were you just like such a grizzled veteran that you were like, you know, you could make anything musical, like you could pick up a broom, you know, the proverbial broomstick and actually make music with it? Did you just have full command of your instrument then? I definitely had full command of what we were doing. Um it's like calisthenics, right? It's just it, the muscle memory that was there from those songs. And, you know, I never saw our band from the audience. I never, and you can watch live tapes and stuff, but it's still, it never, it's never, it's, it always sounds way worse than it probably was perceived in that moment when you're there and it's loud and it's hot and it's sweaty and everyone's getting into it. When you take all that out of it and just watch a recording, you're like, everything seems so flat. (laughs) Yeah. But a lot of folks, you know, would comment about how, tight and cohesive we were as a band i was proud of that you know and it felt like well that's what all that yeah i hope we are that because that's what all of this feels like it's like doing push-ups or something it's work it's it's fun but it's hard and you you know that knife edge just gets sharper and sharper and sharper and you feel more comfortable stretching out a little bit on things here and there um unfortunately that really i don't know i guess it happened a little bit when we did our second record it stretched out a little more musically but yeah nowadays it's like if i think if i could go back and do the record again like with with all the playing that i've done all all over these years even just at home you know i haven't played in a band in forever but like i think i'd have so many more ideas than i had then but i was only in my like 26 or something like i was young you know you know, it's it's funny that you bring up that point, too. Like, the whole, like, well, after we've played this so many times, I wish we can go back and redo it. And I remember, I forget exactly who it was that said, it was it was a musician in a, in a signed band that was touring at the time. Like, you know, it would be great if we were able to write the album and tour on it for 18 months, then go back, yeah. then record it, yeah. and then put it out. Because by then, you know what works, what doesn't work what sounds good, what feels good, where you get the emotions going on stage. It might be different in the studio, but you know where it's going to come out and maybe come up with different ideas for a song. The problem with that is that you need to spend 18 months formulating the album on the road, playing songs that nobody knows for you to get it right. And then you're going to go out and tour 18 months on that album again. It's like, it's not really plausible, but I understand the theory behind it and how much of a difference that could make, especially when you've developed that muscle memory. You've played it so many times. You're like, wow, if I can go back, I would record this so clean and we would capture the power of what people see in us live in right. the studio. It, that all comes out on tape, I think, at least. And this definitely ties into kind of what I was saying earlier about when we were pursuing a record deal, we just thought, because remember I was mentioning, well, we, you know, we could just get in a van, quit our day jobs, put all of our stuff in our parents' houses and go that kind of organic route where, you, you know, full DIY tour, book it yourselves, live in a van. And, and 
really honed the material in front of audiences. I think as a band, we would have benefited from that. I really do. It would have been much harder. And then, you know, who knows? Then maybe that that opportunity that we had on that that time with that record, maybe that vaporized. And then we come back and we're like, all right, you know, we're rough and ready and we're going to go in and crush this this recording and all of a sudden there's really no one interested anymore you just never you know what i mean it's like it's, you never it's hard know, to man. say you know like you're exactly right you know because you had an opportunity the, the contract was there for you you got given the opportunity from arista to sign realize a dream of you know being on a record label sure. with an album playing music that you wrote that you love and just going well are we ready and that's a hard when you're that age when you don't know what's what's coming around the next corner yeah. that's a hard call to make to say no we're not ready it's it, the way i look at it it's like if you're a college you know sophomore right and you're a star running back on OSU right and well we could draft you you know you'll be drafted probably in the second round right. late first round but if you stick around one more year and you perform well, well, then you'll be a high first rounder and make all the big money and fabulous prizes. Or you could blow out your knee and have no career at all. Exactly. So that's the great unknown. And I don't know if you necessarily made a poor decision. I, I don't think that that's I think you made a it's good decision. It's only a poor decision in retrospect. At, in the moment, it felt like we knew it was a gamble. Yeah. I mean, we all went in knowing full well that this record label does not have any track record of producing anything or being successful really with anything like us. They have a track record of being incredibly successful with a different, a whole different genre of music that's yeah. far more pop and 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 produced and and all that stuff. It's not not from the garage, you know. And so we rolled the dice. I mean, you know. But it was certainly going to be more, and I don't know, in a lot of ways, like up to us, I guess we felt, to prove it out on the road. You know, you don't get to pick your audience, right? Yeah. You, you're a band, and no matter what you think you are or where you want to be, you, you just, you don't get to choose who likes your, your music. And when we, you know, we got our first offer for a tour, it was Overkill. And we were like, whoa. Like, these are like old school <laughs> denim and leather metal like, like we were almost like, how is this going to go? Like, people are going to throw shit at us on stage. We're going to be that one getting, like, you know, just soaked in spit. And, like, all of the yeah. things. That, because I didn't hang in that scene. I mean, I only knew them because their records would come in. And yeah. we would get a promo copy and we'd listen to it and be like, well, this is almost just too metal for the... St-. Like, <laughs> we, okay, like three songs. That's good. Yeah, exactly. And and I didn't know them well. But, you know, you get out there and you play with them and you realize that they're just people and they're cool and they're fun. And I was lucky in a way, I guess, having... I don't know. I feel like working in the record store opened my, my mind and eyes to a lot of, like, just not trying necessarily to put things in little boxes so much, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and once when I got out there on the road and we were meshing with a band that we felt like, oh, we are way out of our league here. Like, this is going to be really bad. That's, I mean, that's kind of what we thought. This is going to be really ugly and really bad. All of a sudden, when you're, like, playing, and these, you know, Overkill, they're a New York band, aren't they? Uh, Yeah, they're New York, New New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, Yeah. okay. So, you know, there's that whole thing. We're these Kansas dopes, you know what I mean? (laughs) And, like, hayseeds, right? Just dopes. 
and and there's these hardened dudes have been in this scene forever and they're from New York and the images of New York when you're from Kansas are like oh man it's just like just hard everything there's just hard you know because we've listened to Crow Mags and stuff it's just like it's bad brains and it's just hard you know music's hard and we're playing our first opening set and all of a sudden you look and you start seeing the other guys in the band because they're curious too they're like what is this yeah. you know what I mean and they're like, these guys, like the singer's got a flat top. And this guy's got his hair dyed. And then one, one dude's got dreads. And then the other guy's got long hair. Like, what, what, what are these guys doing, right? And then two or three songs in, because we're pounding out these down-tuned all of a sudden, there's Didi, the bass player, like standing right there watching. The hard guy. You know what I mean? The guy that's <laughs> been in this like hard scene, in my mind anyway, is like, he's kind of digging it. And then afterwards, we're all like, oh, you got, you know, you guys are cool. You know, you're, we're like, you guys are cool, too. It's like, like, we didn't know anything about each other, but it all just sort of made sense. I think they liked what we were doing. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I think a lot of the crowd was probably like, had to make a decision. You know what I mean? <laughs> they were out in the audience and they were like, in their denim and leather. And you know that, I mean, you know what I'm yeah. talking about, right? Yeah. That, that yeah. old school metal scene. And yeah, the old like, school metal scene from back then was like the spikes on the jackets were yes. spikes. Like, you know, yeah. you could be, you, you'd go into a pit and come out with holes in your face just yeah. from like whacking up against somebody's jacket. It, it was not a pretty crowd. No. I mean, you know, is it it's pretty rough? I think, I think the, the ratio of men to women at those shows, I think the ratio actually owed women. Yeah. There was like 101% men in testosterone at oh. those shows. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, some of that sort of bummed us out, too, because it was like in Lawrence, you know, we were in a more like, you know, it's a college town. Everyone's there to have fun. And then all of a sudden, you know, we'd go to some of these shit. Sh- it's like dude soup, right? Yeah. It's just all dudes. And you're like, okay, well. <laughs> but yeah, I think a lot of those a lot of those people in the audience, that's what's funny about it. Because I think, God, it could have gone so much worse. Yeah. Right? Like, they had to make a choice. They were out there, like, you know, probably with, like, hawking loogies, like, ready to launch them or something yeah. and just being like, well, I, I, I guess I'm okay with what's happening up there. I guess it's, you know, they're, they're tuned down, you know, and they, they get the Marshall and Les Paul and the big bass rig and the big drums, and they're just kind of pounding out riffs. That's kind of really all we did was just kind of loop riffs. We are just... You know, we weren't real technical and stuff. And so I guess at some point they just went like, well, I guess in kind of like a primal way, these I'm, I'm cool with it, whatever, you know, they and, don't suck. The, yeah. Yeah. It was, that was, uh, yeah, exactly. We were the lesser of two evils or something in a way to some of those people. And I just remember thinking, man, but the dudes in the band were so cool. You know what I mean? They were yeah. all so, so cool. And we, we, we loved them. And that's where we ended up meeting, uh, our guitar tech who ended up leaving overkill and joining our, our group. And, and we just, we just made great friends and it was, it was really fun. And this is before, you know, Napster, this is before yeah, there was none you know, of that. MP3s. Mm-mm. This is like, people no. still bought CDs. People still went out to go see, people still go out to see shows. Well, maybe not right now. Cause we're we didn't have a, a cell phone on tour. Yeah. You know? There was no cell phones on tour. You used to have using the Thomas in everything. Using the Thomas, Thomas guide to get Thomas around. Guides, yeah. You know, I mean, that's how you navigate it. Yep. Yep. You got in through Thomas guides and you always FedExed in all your, all your paperwork always. Yeah. Uh, and you carried a, we carried a pager so that if anyone needed to get a hold of us, they could call us and we would pull over. Yep, and get on it, and having having to have a long distance calling card, like yeah. all. The, I mean, it's like it's amazing the things that are, 
the modern conveniences yeah. now that aren't weren't there. Never mind having a computer on tour. No, there's no, there no laptop. No, your 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 guest lists were typed up mm-hmm. like on a typewriter or a word processor that you yeah. carried with you, and sometimes it was just handwritten. Um, like yeah, I just remember FedEx <laughs> documents. Just yeah, getting FedEx documents, FedEx documents overnight, long all the distance time. calling yep. cards, um, and and a pager just so that <laughs> if the label needed to reach us, they that was the only way they knew how to get a hold. You know, and even then, that was like high tech. It was like the the beeper was a big deal, you know. T- At that point, you would hire people into our, our like we had a, a tour manager. Uh, he was actually Overkill's tour manager as well. He he went because when their tour ended, he came and worked for us. And just the resources that were in his head from knowing, okay, we're playing this venue. I know where the hotel, the best hotel is, the cheapest hotel we can get that's close to the venue. You know, he knew all that stuff because he'd been around so many times because yeah. we would have been like, I don't, I don't like, how are we going to get a phone book for Lexington, Kentucky or, or, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I don't know where the hotel is. I don't know where the venue, I don't know anyone. It's, it's funny. Yeah, how it's just far funny thinking. Come, yeah. yeah. Funny thing about like how easy it would have been with a cell phone and a nav, like, <laughs> Like eighty-seven percent of your problems are gone. Oh yeah, just directions <laughs> alone were just a problem. Everything was a problem. Well, thank you for the recap of everything that happened during that period of your life and uh, leading up to it, and then subsequently, obviously, you know, you moved from from Kansas Strait to San Diego and started working at Taylor Guitars. Yeah, and I've been there ever since. You know. Been there ever since. Unfortunately, you need to work with me on the regular, <laughs> so I apologize for that. Um, but, uh, you know, you bring all your interesting perspective of everything that you've done to the job, whether or not you may realize it in the sales department, because the way that you would interact with people while being on tour is, you know, very much like interacting with people that are selling things on a daily basis. You're still selling to people in one way or another. On stage, you're selling your product to an audience. You yeah. know, with, with Taylor, you're selling our product to, to a store and telling them, you know, look, this is great, right? Yeah. Yeah. You also had enough um, angst that have built up over the over a bunch of years to lead us to our next segment. <laughs> Being music fans, this is something that we are calling this, this song. <laughs> and that's all the effects you're going to get for this show. Uh, yeah, this song sucks. So uh, with our with our special guest Mike Tobin, and we're going to run through a couple. Uh, and then we're probably going to record some more so we have them in the bank because you have a very unique perspective <laughs> when it comes to songs that suck. And one that we're going to talk about uh, right off the bat here, I was a fan of this band and especially every was, everyone was a fan of this album when it first came out back in the, in the early 80s. It's a band called The Police. The album is Synchronicity, which is, you know, arguably their... While it was their last last album, it's arguably their best album, or at least from a pop standpoint. But it had a song on it called Mother. Yeah. And we had a discussion about this. And Mike is of the opinion that this song sucks. It does suck. So Mother is... um, uh, It's an Andy Summers penned uh, song Mm -hmm. um, that has this sort of 
Mid-Eastern Egyptian tinge to it, but it's a 1-4-5 blues progression. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and after hearing it for the first time in 35 years, 37 years today, uh, before we got on mic here, uh, I was blown away by exactly how shitty it is. I guess it's just because it's, it's just so out of place, and that's why it sucks. <laughs> it's hard to listen to. Now, we did a little research. Andy Summers... Okay, first of all, Andy Summers is one of my very favorite guitar players. Amazing I, guitar player. My very, very innovative My very player. first real guitar. My very first real guitar. You know how we talked about how you know, you, you, you'd buy guitars for yep. 100 bucks from friends and stuff? The first time I ever went out and I bought my own first real guitar, I bought a Fender... It's a Japanese-made Fender 62 reissued Telecaster Custom. And the reason I bought it was because that's the guitar that Andy Summers plays. Now, his has a maple neck. And I couldn't get a maple neck then, but it's the tobacco sunburst double bound body. Mine has a rosewood board, but that's, I bought that guitar because I saw it in the store. I could afford it. And I was like, and that's the guitar that Andy Summers plays. It looks close enough to me. That's why I wanted that guitar. So I love that guy. The guitar solo in Driven to Tears, the the impromptu, sounds like they just jammed the chord into the guitar and he just plays this crazy atonal stuff. I mean, I just... I love it's one of my favorite guitar solos of all time. I love everything that he does. I love everything about that band. But that song is just I described it as it's the soundtrack for a migraine headache. It's like that's what a migraine headache sounds like <laughs> in your head, right? It pulses, it throbs, it's it's just like it modulates, it's like it keeps changing key and and, and for no good reason. No, for no good reason. <laughs> so we were looking up and I guess Synchronicity came out in eighty three, right? Yep. We, we figured out mid, so, mid of June of eighty three. Andy Summers did a solo record with Robert Fripp that came out. It's called I Vance Mast in, in 1982. And I bought that record when it came out because it was Andy Summers. And I, my knowledge of Robert Fripp wasn't that deep at that point, but I knew of King Crimson, of course, and I knew that he'd played the guitar, so, you know, the guitar line on David Bowie's Heroes and things like that. So I kind of knew who he was, but not, I didn't know a lot about him. And that record musically i can hear is definitely where mother came from that i mean just that's kind of crazy off the yeah, wall yeah well you know robert fripp's guitar playing is yeah. it's very i don't i don't even know how to describe it really but it's it's avant-garde it's very uh, yeah it's it's just out there yeah. you know it's out there and then the time the time signatures alone and that come from king crimson and all that kind of stuff so to me it was like that song made sense to me in a way because i heard the andy summers record but it sucks because it's on a police record and it's like the third or fourth song in and, and it's just painful. I mean, there's no way there's never a time that I've put synchronicity on, let that album play, gotten a mother and not just immediate, you know, within 30 seconds being like, I don't want to listen to this shit. I'm sorry. (laughs) And you know, it's, I, like I said, I can imagine sting and Stuart in the studio, like looking at each other, just like, Dude, you're hearing Andy's jam over here like he wants us to do and and being like, man, it's the last album. Let's just just give him, just give him what he wants. Right. Let's just I mean, what do we got? You know, just let's just we'll throw him a bone. Right. We'll record this tune. How many songs are on this album? Uh, uh, nine or ten. How many are hits? Uh, nine out of ten. Well, I guess he can have his. Yeah, I guess we'll put this annoying road bump early in the album. I mean, when you think about all the other, and, and you're right. I mean, like every other song on that album 
on any police album, not even just that one, yeah. makes sense for the most part. You know, on that album in particular, I mean, every breath you take, obviously, that's, you know, that was the smash over the top hit. King of Pain, Wrapped Around Your Finger, Synchronicity 1 and 2. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, five songs. That's more than half the album right there, you know. And, and there might be a little quote-unquote filler, but not much. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a classic album. And then there's this, you know, gigantic, sore-ridden thumb that's sticking out from the middle of it. Yeah. Like, why? Yeah. Why? It's, it's just, it just interrupts. It just the amazing flow the of that album. Yeah, yeah it just, it's, it's just it if you're just gonna break it up, way. if you're gonna break it up, just put thirty seconds of silence. Yeah, just that would be better than Mother. And and just like you, I'm an Andy Summers fan as well. I mean, I had the I had the pleasure and the and and the honor of, of working with Andy Summers in a band he had with Jack Bruce and Dennis Chambers. Mm. And you know, getting to hang out with Andy Summers like and seeing half of his collection in the studio, which at that point was like seventy eight guitars lined up on a wall. I'm like. Wow, you brought everything. It's like, oh, no, this is about half. I'm like, ah! <laughs> you know, and every guitar was better than, you know, the one before it. And they were just fantastic. And just being able to rap with them and work with him on a, on a, on yeah. a business level. And, and, and hearing him create music with, you know, these other two titans in the, you know, of, of, of musicianship. And then Mother. <laughs> like, why? I mean, I should probably do my homework and try and get, figure out what was in his head it, it just doesn't belong on that police record the the thing that just still blows me away is that it's all this crazy nonsense all this crazy noise this migraine-esque yeah. sort of musicianship that is rooted in a one four five blues progression like why like just none of it makes any sense at all it's yeah. it's like if you built a car and every quarter panel was completely different and just for shits and giggles you threw like a hemi engine in it like what 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 is what are you doing? <laughs> well, it sounds like they recorded the track and then they were like, "All right, it's time to do vocals." And then someone held him down, <laughs> pulled his shoe off and tore a toenail off and they were like, "Okay, roll it." <laughs> I think for drums, I think Stuart Copeland just opened a bag of sticks and dumped them on the drum kit. He just threw his drum kit downstairs <laughs> and they recorded it and then they just looped it. But yeah, it sounds like he's singing the song with a toenail pulled off. I mean, it's just Anyway, yeah, it sucks. So we, we can we can we can say this, this, this song sucks. That is our that is our that is our determination. All right, so on to our last segment, which will wrap up uh, our our inaugural first beginning podcast, and that would be that this is how every cover to cover show is going to end, and that's going to be talking about a cover song that myself or the special guest feels that was done so well that it actually exceeded the original version. And for this session, I want to talk about one that I, I really, really love. And, and it's actually, it ties in with Mike Tobin because, you know, you helped reintroduce me to this band and the band is Failure. Failure is a great band that started in the 90s. Ken Andrews drove drives that ship. Amazing ears, amazing songwriting, amazing just sonic soundscapes that are created by this band. Fantastic Planet is, is probably one of the most underrated yet influential albums that came out in the late 90s. Yep. If you cite that album to anybody that was growing up in the late 90s or playing music in the late 90s, they, they will point to that album as definitely something that helped formed or a huge influence on what they do. But the band never really made it over the top. 
you know, they still play, they still record, and I'm thankful for that. They got back together after a number of years apart. They actually have, uh, I think, a box set coming out soon of, of their first three albums on LP, which is really cool. Nice. Um, so that's that I'm looking forward to as well. But in 1997, God, uh, God Lives Underwater. I remember them. If you remember that band, they actually headed up a tribute to Depeche Mode. And uh, a band I was working with in 1998 called Stabbing Westward were on that album. They actually played with did, them once. Yep, they actually uh, they did a version of uh, Personal Jesus that's on that album, and a number of other bands were on there. And Failure did Enjoy the Silence. Now, up to that point, that was probably you know their biggest, or if not one of their biggest hits. You know, Enjoy the Silence, a really big Depeche yeah. Mode song. You know, very big commercially. Mm-hmm. And it's done huge. I mean, it sounds so big sonically. The funny thing about how much I like this song is that, I mean, I was blown away by it when I heard it on album. I was twice as blown away hearing it live when you and I went to go see them Mm -hmm. a few years back, watching them do it live, just destroy the entire audience with this. But then in doing research about the song after seeing them, I'm like, wait a minute, where, let me read more about their version of this. And, you know, Martin Gore wrote the song for for uh, Depeche Mode. He actually likes that version better than Depeche Mode's version. That's impressive because Depeche Mode's ver- that is a great. Well, it, it just speaks volumes to uh, what a great song, right? Yeah, um, a great song is a great song, I, no matter what. It's that, that's know. what. It, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. I mean, Failure just took that and elevated it. Um, it's a really, really good song. I've always loved that song. It's great hooks. It just the, the song just it feels like it just sort of picks you up and carries you along. It's just yeah. such a great tune. I actually saw them do it live before I heard them the recorded version because I'd seen Failure a number of times in the '90s, and I think the tribute album came out just after one of the last times I saw them, I believe. And they, they would do it as an encore, which yeah. I think what they did here in San Diego mm-hmm. too, but they did it as an encore back then as well. When they kicked into it, you know, it kind of starts out with the drum clicks and yeah. stuff like that. And you're like, oh, what are they going to play? And then the minute that, that guitar line, the first two notes of that guitar, like, oh, shit. They're doing Enjoy the Sun. I mean, look, I just got goosebumps. Now. It, was like, <laughs> it was like, oh, this... I mean, it just sort of c- comes together in your head. You're like, this... This is the perfect song for them to cover because failure always has those unique single note guitar lines mm-hmm. in their songs that become these these signatures. And some of them are get kind of atonal with like minor seconds and yeah. weird stuff like that. And they're even they, their chord formations very much like that. Like they keep they add like that extra note to give like a different a different like painting with a slightly different paintbrush. Yeah. Yeah. They are. They're not. They. They're one of those bands that uses, and I, I don't come. I don't come from any kind of music theory background, but I have watched them enough, and have learned those chords, and have been in bands that use those type of chord uh, structures. That I've realized how well they use them because they don't just live in that world of those those weird. You know, you're barring across a drop D chord and stretching out with your pinky and adding that other. Note. I don't even know what you call them, but. <laughs> It's just the failure chord, right? That's what I call it, the failure chord. But they, they're so good at knowing exactly when to throw those things in because it creates an, an extra like texture. And then with that single note guitar line in 
enjoy the 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 hook it it just makes it's the perfect song for them to do yeah you know totally and i didn't realize this until we talked about talking about this song that they just re-released yep a new version like like a month ago or something like that a couple months ago yeah, yeah it was like 2020 now what i was trying to determine was did they just go back to the original track and remix or did they retract the whole thing or did they add to the original i think they he took if you listen to it i mean the the, the vocal performance and drum performance are exactly the same but okay. you know you know as well as i do that ken andrews is a sonic genius oh yeah and i think he went back and he took out a couple of things and added in a couple of things or at least brought prominence to some other things within that mix made it if it was possible even bigger yeah i, um, I noticed that the new version <laughs> after the the kelly scott drum roll yeah. the the prog rock drum roll yeah. that, and, and just the bombastic quad tracked guitar now sounds even bigger than it did live yeah. or or even on that early record which even that early version from the yeah. 90s was still like that was huge. you're like here it comes that was when you'd reach for yeah, the volume yeah, yeah, knob yeah, 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 right yeah. in that drum fill and just hear it just blast and you know they they really capitalized on that with fantastic planet it has plenty of moments like that where Very they much, yeah. they exploit the the it, you know they're doing the kind of the loud quiet thing which was real popular in the 90s too yeah. but they had a way of since since Ken has those engineering skills and a great ear, and it, I think is just so well rounded as a as a musician and a and a producer to to really know how to make something just really punch. Yeah. When there's when you go from that quiet to loud thing, and it, where instead of it just kind of like oh it just got louder the guitar riffs got louder it's just man it just like crushes. No, it, it's it's almost like. You know, and and I could riff on this forever. You yeah. know, when it comes to his production, uh, you know, when when they go from the quiet to the loud, it's like literally like driving on an autobahn at a hundred miles an hour, and then breaking through the Berlin Wall, <laughs> like, and then on the other side, it's just this vibrant, you know, unicorns and candy canes of color and sonic landscape type thing on the other side of that wall. Yeah, you no, because you really hit it hard. Yeah. He hits it hard. But it's not offensive. Right. You know, it doesn't do damage. If anything, it's an emotional lift. So, by the way, Ken Andrews, if you're listening to this podcast, we would love for you to be a guest on Cover to Covers. Thank you. Um, just a little. <laughs> no, you're out. right, though. When, when, <laughs> when, when they have that moment, the big explosive moment, things be, do become very colorful. He doesn't just exploit the, oh, okay, here, we're going to crank the bass and we're going to crank, we're going to eight, yeah. eight or eight or 10 track the guitars here. So they just, it's just this wall of guitar. He also, he does that, but he also sprinkles in all those, the little fairy dust and all that stuff that makes things sound really kind of like the single note keyboard that like you just notice if you listen to it on the third listen, be like, wow, that is important. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and all the, yeah, just all the psychedelic little kind of shattering glass. I always call them the shattering glass sounds like, like a glass bottle exploding into space. The yeah, there's just all that kind of stuff going on, and that that song has it in spades. Yeah, uh, I mean, they, and and the thing is, yeah, I mean, like you said, it's a great song. They had a great roadmap to work with, but the fact that they took it and what they did with it, I mean, you still know it's a Depeche Mode song, but they did it so well. Yeah, it's you fantastic. Know? And it the really fact is. that the guys in Depeche Mode appreciate it more than their own version, like we wish we did that one. Yeah, like that's. That's a testament to how good it is. That's pretty you know? cool. So for me, like listening to that, 
you know, not knowing what Depeche Mode's opinion was on it. And then like, wow, I love this song. Oh, they love it too. Good. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's killer. It, it is absolutely killer. It's it's worth worth the price of admission for sure. It's it's uh, It does not disappoint. So for those of you that have been listening to the, this podcast, if you want to review the songs that we had been talking about, um, again, Mother by The Police was part of our This Song Sucks segment, uh, which got two thumbs down. Uh, both me and Mike feel it sucks. And then as far as the cover review, again, enjoy the silence uh, by failure. Their version of it, uh, their version of, of, of Depeche Mode's original, uh, which is on a tribute album called For the Masses. Uh, it's not in print anymore, but if you want to hear the new version of the track, it is available out there in the ether on your favorite streaming services. Uh, if not, you can just go to Failure's website and, and you can find out where to get it from them. If you like any of those tracks or if you want to listen to them, make sure you support the artist, download the tracks, give them some money, whether it be a stream for 0.03 cents for every time you listen to it or what have you. I'd like to thank Mike Tobin for joining me today. Thank you so much for hanging out here in the uh, hot and sweaty apartment as we had to shut the AC off because it's too loud and we're in a heat wave here in Southern California right now. Uh, And thanks for coming over during the middle of the uh, COVID crisis. I swear I'm not infected. Um, And we we did an elbow bump. We didn't hug or anything. (laughs) So I think we're all safe. So again, thank you for listening to Cover to Covers. My name is Mike Venezia. Thanks again. And we hope to see you soon. Thank you.